Welcome to People from the Program, a podcast highlighting alumni from the NYU Music Business Program. Welcome, everyone, to People from the Program, the podcast that highlights the career journeys of alumni from the NYU Music Business Program. I'm your host, Bryce Butler, founder and chairman of the NYU Music Business Alumni Network and a proud alum myself of the NYU Music Business Program. Our guest on today's show is Ali Matola, Director of Revenue Strategy and Operations and Customer Success at PEX, where he touches data, technology, process, customers, and product. Prior to moving to the U.S., he ran a DJ mix and event series while also working in the film events industry as a freelance producer. In his free time, Ollie has built a custom GPT for RevOps, works on a record label, booking agency, and loves to experiment in the kitchen. Ollie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bryce. Happy to be here. Thanks yeah. for Happy to have you on. It sounds like you have a lot going on, and I'm excited to to jump into your career story, man. This is going to be fun. <laughs> yeah, sometimes a bit too much feels like a lot, but yeah, I try to keep busy. <laughs> is it ever really too much, though, Ali? <laughs> uh, it's fun. It's fun. <laughs> All right. So I'd like to start out with this first question. Tell me about your journey to the NYU Music Business Program. Um, how did you how did you find it and how did you get here? Yeah, so my journey to the program was not very linear, I would say. Uh, I, I was part of the graduate program, so not the undergrad, and uh, I had a bachelor's in business economics, which I got uh, in London. And uh, and at the time, when I was sort of in the last few years of university and finishing university, I was really struggling to find what I wanted to do. Uh, I had interned uh, at a small investment fund. That wasn't really working for me. Uh, I had the opportunity to travel for work and uh, spent some time in Indonesia working on a factory floor uh, for a furniture company. Oh, wow. Uh, I I was very lucky that uh, my mother's uncle moved there about 40, 50 years ago and started this business building furniture for um, for hotels. And so I worked there for some time, try to get a sense of what it means to work in in a real business on the ground. So that was really interesting. And uh, and at the same time, uh, my father was uh, managing and directing a short film festival. Uh, oh, Italy. And so given that I had no real sense of direction of what I wanted to do and was just looking for an opportunity to like get my hands dirty and work, uh, and I was pretty organized because I had a business background, I started helping out with, uh, with the festival. And at first it was really minor stuff. I was just helping with the production. The, the team was relatively small. There were like about five to six full-time employees, plus the festival expanded to, you know, 40 to 50, 60, depending on the, on the edition. There, were, there was one edition every year. And uh, I joined the, the festival at a pretty interesting time because this was probably around like 2014, something like that, 20, 2013. And the, the festival had been through a few transformations. First one being 
the world was hit by a financial crisis, so right. funding had, had dried up uh, in the arts, especially in Italy. Uh, festival was mostly funded by government grants, uh, and the sponsorship had all gone away. And the second thing that was interesting was that YouTube happened, and so the reasons that someone would go to a short film festival were kind of starting to wane because back in the day it was to find new exciting films from young filmmakers and now all that stuff was happening online so alongside the on the ground work that i was a, a part of i was also witnessing the need for a shift in corporate strategy where we needed to reinvent the reason for one to go to a festival. Why would you go if you can see all the content online? Right. So uh, very early on, I was lucky to be a part of these conversations where I was leveraging my business know-how to do a lot of the market analysis to understand what are other festivals doing? How are they adapting? Because I was the only real person with a business background right. uh, at the festival. Everybody else was like, super film geeks, film directors, but nobody really had uh, a business academic background or like experience. And so I was lucky to be put in that role where I was doing a lot of the analysis and we were looking at some of the festivals around um, and trying to mimic them. We ended up doing a partnership with Sundance, which is a real, really prominent festival in the US. Oh, excellent. Yeah. And uh, really reinventing the festival to be a B2B space where mm -hmm. film directors would come to learn there would be workshops uh and right. so it was like less open to the public and more so a place for people to gather learn network uh and almost become like a marketplace uh for films right more yeah. industry more industry event leaning we talk about the b2b side Exactly, exactly. Right. And that's exactly it. And so where the music part starts coming in is that at the same time, I mean, I'd always been super passionate about music specifically, like dance music, techno house. Uh, and one of my closest friends starts a record label at the time. And I start seeing what he's doing. And I, and I tell myself, well, wow, I really love music. I wish that I could organize right. my own music festival. Uh, and so I start planning uh, my own record label with uh, a festival and booking, booking agency, uh, all kind of vertically integrated, exploring specific types of electronic music. So around the sort of first few years of the 2010s, there was a big wave of electronic dance music that hit the U.S. with Skrillex right. and all EDM, all that stuff. Right, uh, right. And what I started noticing by just like listening to DJ mixes on SoundCloud was that you would start seeing pockets uh, of this music emerging all around the world, all influenced by their own local and traditional sounds. So you would start seeing like Electro Cumbia, Salsa and House, you know, Deep House from Armenia with like melodic techno, Turkish disco and Electro House. So you start seeing like all of these different flavors of what ultimately was like electronic music. I was like, okay, like let's try to aggregate all of this under one umbrella and have a festival that's like touring and all that stuff. And, and, and as I'm doing all this work, I'm like, wow, I know nothing about the music industry. 
and uh, and my parents were like a bit concerned that I was throwing myself into something like this because my my father was intimately familiar with what it means to run a festival. Yes, and it's a, and it's a struggle. Uh, it's not it's not easy, and so they were like, eh, "Are you sure? Like, do you want to go to grad school?" And I was like, oh, well, I guess maybe I can find uh, something related to music. And that's where I found NYU. Yeah, yeah. And I was really lucky because it was the only school that I applied to. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'm happy it worked out. That's, uh, that's kind of how I ended up at NYU. Wow, it's a great score. It's a great story because it it's so fascinating to me. I, you know, I've talked to, to many different people and everyone gets to the program in their own unique way, but you, you were already like making your way in the industry, you know, film, music, what have you, and creating your own lane, lane and being very entrepreneurial even before you found the program. So it was really the program was to supplement the work you were already pursuing almost. Yes, that's true. Although in a sense, I feel like I had been trying to get into the festival scene for a while and I was applying to so many jobs and I was getting nowhere. So at a point it, it became like, okay, nobody's going to hire me. I'm going to do it myself. Uh, so it was more like, that's also how I ended up being more entrepreneurial. Uh, it's right. not as good as selling my, as selling myself as I should be. And so I end up doing the work myself. Right. And I, and I can only imagine when you apply to the program and, you know, they're asking for essays and, ex and, and examples of experience, you've got a plethora of things that you could say, oh, I've been doing this, I've been doing this. So it makes sense that the program would be such a great fit for you. Yeah. And it was like, and it's funny because things then ended up changing direction completely. But when I came into the program, I felt extremely confident about what I was going to do and what I wanted to do. And I like came in super decisive with like, okay, I'm going to do festivals. Um, but that's not really what happened in the end. Yeah. And absolutely. I just, I just feel it's important to call out though to the people we are, Ali is based in New York city. I am in New York city. So if you hear a horn beeping in the background or what have you, it's just a product of where we live. We like to keep it natural on the show and give you the raw. So <laughs> just wanted to let you know. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that's Brooklyn for you in the background. <laughs> so apologies. Also, Ali, I would be remiss and maybe some of our, some of our, um, Listeners may have been thinking this when they saw your last name, Matola. <laughs> there was a thought that, hmm, could he be related to the other Matola that's in, that's in the music business, and then decided to come to the program. So when you tell me your, you know, your dad and what he was doing, I said, oh, okay, so it's not it's not the the Sony Music Matola that we know. Right. <laughs> uh, that's really funny because actually my dad's name is Tommaso, which is like Tommy, like the other guy from Sony. Uh, and uh, no, I, I got this question a lot, but they are not related. And it's, uh, yeah, it's really funny because a few years ago uh, on an Italian newspaper, there was a picture of um, Tommy Mottola dating Mariah Carey. <laughs> and, and suddenly my dad starts getting calls. He's like, oh my God, are you dating Mariah Carey? He's <laughs> like, no, no, that's, that's not me. That's somebody else, unfortunately. <laughs> I know you meet people, you have to tell them your name and go, no relation. <laughs> and, yeah. and they already know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, that's great. All right. So 
Okay, so you get to the program. You're like, okay, I need to go ahead and pursue this um, from, you know, with the education and, and, and get my master's. As you're going through the program, what was your favorite class and why? Yeah, so this is where we get into, I guess, how I changed direction a bit. Uh, and so I'd say in the end, my favorite class ended up being Emerging Models and Markets for Music. Oh, excellent. Be because it really helped contextualize the macro perspective of the moment we were living in the music industry, which, you know, having that macro lens was always interesting to me. That's why I studied economics in the first place. Although when I was sort of starting the program and in the first year, that's not where I was. This class was in the second year. That's not where I was leaning at all. In fact, I had started writing my thesis and the colloquy uh, thinking about festivals and uh, specifically, specifically destination festivals. Uh, and the idea was that with the advent of cheap air travel, like EasyJet, Ryanair, all of those European airlines, plus cheap air travel going transatlantic as well, plus Instagram, you would start seeing these like festivals in beautiful locations, really exclusive uh, and all packaged really well uh, and easy to sell because it, lo it looks really beautiful online. And at the same time that this was happening, I don't know if you recall, but there was a little event called Fire Festival, uh, which completely imploded. It was basically they ended up doing a couple of documentaries about it on Netflix. Uh, but I was writing about that festival as I saw all the promotion happening. And basically the entire festival turned into a fiasco where they scammed uh, all the attendees. And all this happens while I'm writing the thesis. The thesis so I'm like, okay, well, I guess maybe I'm not going to write about this because nobody else is going to gonna go in that kind of business because maybe it doesn't work. Uh, so I had to change direction and then I was in, in this class in the second year, Emerging Models and Markets for Music, uh, taught by mm -hmm. Professor Spink. Yes. And I, I remember a few of the readings like really distinctly by Professor Von Hippel, like an MIT professor from the business school and Lawrence Lessig, uh, a lawyer from, uh, lawyer and professor from Harvard where they basically started to talk about, uh, you know, hybrid economies, super fans, uh, crowdfunding and the prosumer, basically consumers that end up being, they're like professionals and they almost end up being creators, right. which is a lot of the basis for all the creator economy that we see today, where like, right. you know, the user ends up being also the creator. Uh, so I, I was coming at this as well from the world of remixes, you know, and dance music is like full of remixes. You're constantly doing a cultural remix. Right. YouTube is happening at the same time. And so I, I switched my thesis to looking at how the music industry can learn from what gaming is doing to get more value out of user generated content. because. Initially, music had kind of an adversarial relationship to people remixing their content. Right. They were like, no, take this down, especially like when the internet happened, you started seeing all these blogs made from fans, like record labels are like suing people left and right. And because they had 
lost control of distribution. Right. However, like when you look at the way gaming was born, being able to modify a game was like a thing from day one. Like a ga uh, gaming companies and studios would release packages that allow you to modify the game to make it more your own. So, for example, there is some there were so many instances of like Call of Duty maps that get remodeled to portray specific battles in history. Right, and uh, there was a study that basically showed that by allowing people to engage into the game with the game this way, it would extend the shelf life of the game. It makes it more personalized to a specific geolocation. And so I was thinking, like, why can't music learn from what's happening in uh, in the gaming space? And so yeah, it was it was really fun to write about all of that. Uh, this was when I don't know if. I don't. I didn't have TikTok in my thesis. I think it was just like starting to happen. I remember talking about musically. Uh, so yeah, I, it was great to be able to like read the context in this in the classes and really see what was happening around me and merge it with my passion for gaming, music, and yeah, it was really fun. Really fun. Yeah, you know it's it's interesting when you talk about this idea of control with with the remix because we all know remixing has been around forever when when the artist or the team controls the remixing process they're a lot more open to the results of that process for example mm -hmm. the original i can't wait i'm going old school by new shoes was a good record until it got remixed by a popular european remixer when it wait when it made its way over here and buddy it was popping <laughs> they didn't care they said let's package this up put this out but now that it's yeah. become more of an open market and people lose the control you know it becomes an issue yeah and there's like you know the i i remember hearing this really interesting talk by uh i think it was the president of steam which is like a game studio and gaming platform where they propose to gaming developers to see themselves as curators, not just creators. So when they're releasing a piece of work, uh, don't assume that it's going to be finished. Assume that people are going to continue to build on top of it. And you're basically just opening up the floodgates and curating the experience. And I think, music is starting to like embrace that a lot more because now there's a direct translation from like all the remixes that are happening for example on TikTok, and you see a bump in streams as well so it works really well there's obviously always going to be really bad remixes and that's really tough to control unfortunately but i think ultimately this like cultural remix is a net positive for music absolutely i do I do work as an AR consultant for a indie label called Valhalla Entertainment. And Valhalla is in the process of building out their catalog with this exact model. Um, we have a remix, we have a record out right now by Aiden Lewis called Forever. And the goal is do it as a single. We have the original, but we're letting a ton of people remix it and we're packaging that and putting that up on Spotify. So yeah, we're seeing, we're practicing that and we're seeing other labels do that as well. I mean, yeah, that's amazing. I, th I think the more you can empower the remixes, either by giving out the stems and the single like tracks, only the vocals maybe, or like just being open to it and not taking it down. I think there's, yeah, there's benefit to that. It's great that you guys are doing it. 
Yeah, absolutely. So you, you're creating this unique lane at the program and you're, so you're at these classes and they're, and they're allowing you to talk about how music is, is kind of being presented along with the macro perspective um, in economics and, and how you're putting all that together. So as you've gone through, if you had to pick one main takeaway you got from the program, what would you say it would be? I mean, definitely keeping an open mind because you never know what's going to happen. Like my, my story, I guess, is a great example of that because I came in super like, I had made up my mind. I'm going to be all about festivals. And mid-program, I end up, in a sense, reconnecting with one of my passions, which was like the macro sphere, which I had a bit lost as I was like working on the festival uh, before coming to grad school and, uh, taking the classes and keeping an open mind to the knowledge that was being presented to me was, yeah, it just crafted my path forward. And so being open to that was, I think was important. Just keeping an open mind because you never know where you're going to end up. Yeah. Almost the, that entrepreneurial, kind of spirit that you brought in has to allow you to to pivot and be open to different things and different lanes which which is important in a program like ours okay so all right so now when the program is finished for you talk about kind of your first job when you graduated was there was there an extensive kind of internship experience before that job was that first job kind of you know working continuing to work with dubset like like how did that work and what was that like yeah so the the first job was a result of uh, two consecutive internships at dubset so dubset for context uh, was a tech startup that was trying to um, license dj mixes for dsps so we would receive a dj mix we had a technology very similar to Shazam uh, to identify the music that was being played. So then based on specific rules that a label or a publisher would set up in our database, uh, we'd be able to distribute or not distribute to Apple, Spotify, etc. So basically the idea was to get DJ mixes legally on platforms instead of, you know, a lot of the murky licensing that happens on user generated content platforms. And, uh, I was interning there at the beginning uh, in the New York office. The company was about 30, 40 people. We had five in the New York office, so really small space. And I was there all the time, uh, probably more than I should have or was allowed to, but I was really trying to uh, make the case for myself and uh, get hired. Uh, as an international student, I was also confronted with the reality that if I was not going to find a job, uh, I was going to have to leave the country. And so I really mm. needed to find an opportunity uh, where I believed that they would be able to sponsor me, which had a cost, uh, sponsor my visa and sort of get a, a stable uh, and paying job. So luckily i interned there for six months so like two semesters and in the end i ended up getting hired and you know it was a startup environment so the entrepreneurial sort of approach really worked there i had the opportunity to work on a lot of 
problems which were an extension of the work that I was doing in university. So a lot of it had to do with user-generated content and proving the value of it. So I remember some of the projects were specifically around building a case study for why remixing music is good for a label and that you should make your catalog available for, for, for DJ mixes. Uh, so that was a lot of fun. I got exposed to mm. all the inner workings of the digital supply chain of music, mm. which is really something that you don't see in school, which I hadn't been exp exposed to. So DDEX right. formats, uh, you know, who are all the vendors that are uh, helping get the music on the DSPs, you know, RaceNote, MediaNet, all these distributors that are doing like white label services. And I remember looking at these like big spreadsheets with uh, with all the catalog sizes for all these distributors. I was saying, oh, wow, like CD Baby and DistroKid, they are huge. And maybe you start seeing all of these names and you're like, who are, who is this distributor in the UK? They have like 6 million tracks. So I also found like a lot of really cool music by seeing sort of the back end and the pipes of the music industry. Uh, and yeah, I had the opportunity to, I was working in the label and publisher services department. So basically lot of account management dealing with the labels with the publishers helping them use our product onboard them teach them how to use it uh, all that kind of stuff and and that's also where i started getting a bit closer to the world of technology in a sense because one of my responsibilities then ended up being managing the company crm which was salesforce which right. I had never used before. I didn't, even know, <laughs> I didn't even know what a CRM was. I'm definitely was. familiar with Salesforce. <laughs> yeah, so I was just like, okay, trying a few things here, breaking a few things there, uh, building dashboards to try and understand. Like, we had signed uh, a deal, like an opt-in deal, with uh, with an association to get uh, a large number of labels signed up to our service, mm -hmm. and suddenly we start seeing that, hey, like these people are stuck in the pipeline, what's happening? And so I mm. had to basically build an entire project management tool within Salesforce using specific fields that were relevant to us with everybody. It's, it's like DDEX information, uh, what kind of, uh, you know, version they're using and basically started customizing a lot of Salesforce to our needs. And it was really fun to do all of this. Uh, and so that's also how, uh, yeah, how I started getting closer to the world of tech and what my role is more today, I guess. Yeah, in terms of in terms of these tools, just to dig into that a little deeper in terms of the tools and Salesforce and kind of going over those type of things. Yes, revenue operations big part of that is this also touching sales enablement too a little bit and and you're you're kind of moving between these worlds without even saying it because of just your basic functions at the jobs uh so i would say yes and no like at my current role there's definitely more sales enablement back in the day i had no sense of what any of these names mm. even meant like right. my role was basically just Labels and publisher services manager are really like customer success. 
as I understand it today. Uh, and I was supporting other people on the sales team with like maybe specific materials that they needed or just like supplying data, um, looking at the dashboard, seeing, okay, we have a bottleneck here. We need to improve this specific part of the process. We need to, uh, you know, if everybody's signing up via an opt-in, they need to be educated because often they don't even know what they're opting into. Right. So it's like managing a lot of the operations behind the sales team at the time and yeah, sort of helping out where needed because that's what ends up happening a lot at a startup. Yeah, uh, I am. I'm very familiar with that. Okay, great. So, you know, out of the program, now you, you've got this experience at, at Dubset. Um, talk to me just about PEX. And because from Dubset, then you go to PEX and want to know what exactly, first and foremost, is PEX? You know, talk about your roles there, what you've done there, and how you've built on your experience and, and just go into that situation. Yeah, so I'll answer what PEX does and then I'll proceed chronologically, I guess, to how, how I grew into the role. So PEX Absolutely. is a. I guess a digital rights management uh, company. We have a technology very similar to Shazam, uh, and we have two main products. With one product, we are basically scanning all social media platforms, so TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, YouTube, SoundCloud. Uh, we have about 20 to 25, if I'm not mistaken, platforms under our purview, and we sell data uh, to record labels or digital rights management companies, which administer rights on behalf mm. of the rights holders right. to basically say, okay, that content is mine because I can see it. We tag it to them uh, and they then decide what they want to do with that information. They can either, right. if, if the platform has a sophisticated rights management to, uh, system like YouTube, they can claim that content and get better monetization on the platform. They could uh, work on anti-piracy efforts. So, hey, like this song isn't out yet, but somehow it got leaked. Uh, we can scan all of these platforms and say, hey, it just showed up on SoundCloud or it just showed up on some Chinese platform. And then the record label needs to issue a takedown with the platform itself. Uh, or there's sometimes like, a marketing benefit. So if you're trying to see uh, who's using our uh, your music as a record producer, a beat maker, or just like any artist, really, uh, you'll notice, oh, like there's this channel keeps on using my music. Uh, maybe I should enter some kind of like licensing relationship with them that's exclusive. So I can be their exclusive purveyor of music and get a deal in place. Or maybe I see Hold on, my music is all over, I don't know, Lemon 8, which is a platform that we track. Maybe I should be more active on there and sh I should engage with that audience. So it's really like a, an intelligence tool, essentially, uh, as well. Uh, so rights management intelligence tool. So that's our discovery product. And then we utilize the same technology to prevent fraud uh, mm -hmm. on on DSPs or other platforms. So a, a distributor can connect to our database of rights uh, to make sure that, uh, Bryce, if you're trying to 
uh, upload a copy of a Drake song and you're just changing the name and you, you're pretending that it's your song, uh, a distributor by plugging into our system would see, oh, actually this is a Drake song because we have it in our database. Right. Uh, let's not distribute it to Spotify, otherwise we're going to get in trouble and so on. Or same technology can be applied to a platform who needs to report to a PRO or to labels and doesn't have a system for identifying what lives on their service. And so they can yeah, plug into our infrastructure. So it's like almost like AWS for copyright management. That's how I like to call it. Excellent. And for the record, I would never do such a thing. <laughs> <laughs> I know that. I know that. <laughs> no, very interesting. Okay, so then what was your what was kind of your first role there? And then how did you grow into into focusing more on revenue operations? Yeah, so uh, I actually came to PEX as a result of an acquisition. So Dubset was bought by PEX. And mm. so I was lucky to see all that sort of all those events unfold from beginning to the end. Uh, and uh, when I, as I said, I was like in a dubset working in a bit of a hybrid role where I was customer facing, but also managed a lot of internal operations. And when I joined PEX, I had to, cho to choose between the two. And they said, okay, you either like go full um, customer facing or you go full into the operation side because the team was bigger and they needed more focus. And so I decided to go full into the operation side of things. In the first like month and a half of the job, as the acquisition was coming to a close, I had already moved over to PEX and I had to merge two CRMs, which is like a really grueling experience. Like most people go their entire careers without having to do a CRM migration. And I had to do it basically in my first year at the job where I had to like migrate Salesforce into a HubSpot instance. So that was uh, very interesting. And as I sort of settled into the role, the head of business development at the time, uh, who ended up becoming my manager uh, later on, uh, asked me a few questions and he said, okay, so how do you think about leads? What are you like, what do you do to optimize our conversion rates? How do you look at uh, CAC, customer acquisition costs and churn reduction? Mm -hmm. And I was like staring at him blankly and <laughs> like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about, man? I'm just like making this up as I go. And he was like, he was like very kind and, and understanding and he, he, showed me a bunch of resources and specifically like a blog post that talked about revenue operations and what the revenue operations framework really meant and what it was supposed to do. Uh, and I started digging into this a bit and at the time, just like taking a few steps back, uh, just re remember that I was an international student and so I needed a visa to join. Uh, to, to work in the U.S. Uh, right. So mm -hmm. to get a visa, there is a lottery system. And Dubset, while they tried to sponsor me, I did not get into the lottery. So what ended up happening is that I had to go to, back to grad school. And Dubset and, and PEX sort of agreed to pay for grad school. So they gave me a raise to, to sort of make that happen, which I'm eternally grateful, obviously, uh, for. And... Uh, 
And so while I'm in grad school, again, getting a degree in uh, information systems engineering, I'm starting to get closer to this world of sort of the technology side and managing a CRM and revenue operations. And so as I'm learning revenue operations, I tell myself, well, why don't I write my thesis on this? Because it seems really complicated and I could just like teach myself by learning and I can catch two birds with one stone. And as I'm learning this in, in school and like digging a bit, I realized that actually nobody had ever written about revenue operations in academia. It was something that was like pretty early on in the life cycle uh, of development. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to take this actually really seriously and start like interviewing people and try to understand what is revenue operations. And so the right. sort of definition that I kind of came to in, in the studying and, and working in it, basically with the proliferation of tools that are at the disposal of a salesperson, a marketing person, and a customer success person, where everything is traceable. You know, with marketing, you can do social media campaigns, you can look at intent data, you're managing a website, it's very technology heavy, and you can like track the customer journey through all the different touch points and interactions that you have with with someone online. At the same time, customer success as a function really starts growing because products are now digitized where everything is traceable. So instead of just having a relationship that is managed in person, I can start tracking your behavior and your usage of the product. And if I'm looking at data, I can really start predicting your behavior by seeing, oh, you haven't logged in in three days, you're not loading in your assets. This is an early indicator that you might not be interested in in the in the product. Uh, at the same time, for sales tools, there's a lot of automation that you can build. Uh, AI note takers, uh, automated uh, outreach and outbound, um, and so re- revenue operations really tries to glue all of these pieces together. You need to have expertise in data. You need to understand the tools, how all of these systems basically gel together to create a, a free-flowing system that's generating revenue faster right. for for the company, right? You if you if you look at the revenue generating process as a factory floor, there's like constraints and only a few levers that you can pull here and there. You know, you can generate more leads, so have people engage with you. That's a marketing effort. You can get better at selling when those leads come to you, or you can hire more salespeople. There's like not that many things that you can do. And so RevOps is really about understanding all of these systems and trying to work with the people in your team. So I work across sales marketing and the customer success uh, to enable them to do their job better so we can all be more efficient, essentially. Yes. As a as a seller myself, I could tell you that your role, you already know this, is very important. <laughs> uh, the tools that we use and the data we use to, to figure out this stuff and know the correct direction to go, very important. But I want to go back and drill down on something because I think we can miss this. When you talk about building these tools, what are some of the skills that you've acquired that you use to 
build these things. Because when I hear build, I think a lay person will think they need to have a strong coding background or tech background to know how to go in and build these things. Is that the case? Or are you just diving into the tools and platforms and it's a little more intuitive than that and they're building it for you, you just know how to orchestrate it and put it together? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think at a basic level, having an understanding of how software is built is incredibly valuable. And mm. I was lucky to have been in school to study information systems engineering mm. because even though I don't really know how to code, like, I mean, I took some classes, but right. that's not really how my brain works. Uh, understanding, for example, at a very simple level, you can either build in a monolith, so where all of the pieces of software are connected together, or you can build smaller components that all stitch together. And learning that approach to customizing our CRM, which is no code, so you just have to like uh, connect pieces together, is really important because at the beginning I was trying to build this huge perfect system that would address all problems at once. And once I started to like package different functions together uh, in, in smaller systems, it became much easier to manage. I'll give an example. Okay. Uh, I've built a lead routing system, which is basically when someone comes into our website, who should it go to? So the, the lead uh, or the person would like fill in some things on our website form. And based on the information that's uh, that's uh, populated in this form, it goes to either our platform expert, our publishing expert, or our uh, label expert. Now, this is like one contained system, like a, a lead routing system. There's also a system to make sure that once uh, this lead has come in and has been assigned, that there's a notification to our Slack channel uh, to let someone know, hey, you just got assigned this new lead. You make sure you're like engaging with them. I was at first trying to like make these all part of the same system, but every time I made a small change on one side of the thing, it affected all the other side of the house. Right. And so <laughs> once you start like breaking up everything into what's called like a microservices architecture, uh, you start being able to deploy changes a lot faster uh, than you would actually do if you had to like treat everything as a, like almost like some like a house of cards that if you move right. something over here like it breaks over there and it becomes really right. hard to manage so to answer your question like you can learn a lot of this stuff by making the mistakes you don't need to know how to code but having a sense of how software is built and agile methodologies is useful mm. the cool thing is that all this information is available online Yes. So mm -hmm. uh, one, one thing that I really learned by joining PEX is that the learning never stops. Like I remember like, right. being so impressed with the, the level of the people at the organization. And like I had to rethink completely the way I approached work because, you know, I was just winging it a lot uh, many times. And now I, like I realized, wait a second, there's like actually a right way to do this. And so that's where you have to tap into your network, meet new people, try to build a support system or like almost like your board of directors that can help you understand, 
hey, like, how do I solve this problem? I'm sure I'm not the first person to try and solve this. Uh, and maybe others can help. And being part of like different Slack communities and stuff like that can always really help get over those those bumps. Because the truth is that most ops right. people like myself are usually self-taught. Mm, uh, it, it becomes like, hey, you know how to do a lot of things. Here's a lot of things and figure it out. And figure and so it out. You end up being like this catch-all and you're like, okay, like I know how to do them, but like, am I doing it in the right way? I don't know. Because usually there's nobody to teach you. And so it's really important to, yeah, to just build a support network around you to, to help you navigate the uncertainty. Yeah, the the whole kind of concept of revenue operations, I think, has that built into it where a lot of people are self-taught and they're going in and maybe they've they've worked in sales and, and done heavy work in a CRM and like this needs to work better. So they just had to jump in and figure it out. <laughs> but then yeah. but then, you know, you learn and then it just goes from there. So, yeah, that makes a ton of sense um, when you're talking about that, because a lot of even sellers um, myself included, some of it, a lot of it is just self-taught through going through processes or reading books or f getting information and understanding how to take people through these journeys in order to grow revenue effectively. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a never ending process and there's, there's, you know, ultimately there is no wrong way. There's multiple ways of solving problems often, but there's easier ways, I would say. And so, so definitely. So in the spirit of easier ways, this is a good segue. Um, talk to the people about Pavilion. You're a member. What is Pavilion and why is that important? Yeah, so Pavilion is uh, basically a, a network slash school, uh, online school community uh, of uh, professionals working in revenue organizations. And it, basically there's a ton of resources that they... Uh, have at your disposal uh, to learn. So there's courses that you can take. There is networking opportunities, as I said, like Slack channels and things of the sort that help you elevate yourself as a professional. Uh, and especially like in newer type of professions that are heavily affected by the change in the technology landscape, like mine, or like really anybody who's has a job today because every every job is being touched specifically pavilion serves revenue professionals so if you're maybe just entered like stepped into a chief revenue officer role and you're in over your head and you're looking for peers that's like a great resource and network um, that you have access to yeah that's great and those type of networks like you said are very important because not only just connecting with like-minded individuals, but the resources that you can find out about platforms to use that you never even thought, oh, I could use this. And now it's making your life easier. These tools help automate and do a lot of things. A lot of times you find that out from other professionals that are using them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like leaning on other people. I, I have the tendency to try and do everything myself and i think that i know it all uh but as i'm getting like a bit uh more experienced i'm really like trying to tone that tone that down and uh try to be more humble and see you know like you can learn so much by looking at how other people work 
And I'm lucky to work even at PEX with a ton of in incredibly talented people who have like incredible software engineers just by observing how they work and how they speak and how they explain things, uh, or even more on the music side, like incredible copyright experts where you learn about PROs, you learn about copyright legislation in Europe. I mean, it's, yeah, just observing from others is, a, is the best thing that you can do. Just be a sponge. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, this has been, this has been great, Ollie. I've got two more questions and then we're going to get out of here. But the first question I like to ask this of all my guests, what are you curious about right now? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm probably going to give an answer that anybody who's working in my space at this point in time is going to give. Totally uh, fine. <laughs> and it's, I mean, the way AI is affecting my daily job uh, is incredible. Um, I think there are so many tools these days at your disposal to make everything you do more efficient. And I'll give two examples. Uh, one is like I got a demo from a product the other day where they were basically showing me that I could build a workflow where I could record all of the calls that our sales team was having. Uh, at the end of the day, provide a summary that's sent to everybody on the team of all the calls that have happened. And out of those summaries, generate user stories uh, to basically uh, inform product development. And this is an idea that, that a colleague of mine had. And so it's just, that's like multiple steps that require expertise usually from people uh, and time especially to manage all of that and do, being able to do this at scale in an automated way by just like plugging in a few systems is like mind blowing to me. And so I think we're really gonna start seeing a lot of like small businesses that don't really need a lot of uh, people uh, and can be extremely, incredibly lean and efficient. And yeah. sort of to that point, uh, I actually started tinkering with ChatGPT a lot myself and mm -hmm. ChatGPT allows you to uh, build custom GPTs. These are basically smaller systems that are a bit more expert on a specific domain and I've loaded into that the paper that I wrote about revenue operations, a lot of as well as a lot of other academic resources to understand basically the framework of revenue operations, and uh, to basically be what I don't have, which is my mentor, my assistant, and my strategic advisor for the the problems that I face at my daily role. So I go to it uh, every week when I'm trying to tackle a problem and I'd say, hey, how do I generate more leads? This is my technology stack. Right. Mm -hmm. Do you have other recommendations for what tools to use, what metrics I should be looking at? And it basically becomes like a, an expert sounding board for myself. And uh, yeah, so just building these types of tools myself and seeing what others are building and how this is affecting my job is super exciting right now. Wow, that's great. Yeah, I feel a lot of even in my work coming in, working with smaller businesses and trying to get them to see that, hey, we may not have four or five people, but we have tools that we can use to help streamline streamline these processes and help us do the work of four or five people. And then as we scale, we can add people as needed. So 
Yeah, I think that's that's really important stuff. Um, okay, and then my last question, if you could go back and talk to yourself on the first day that you started the program, what would you say to yourself? Hmm. Yeah, uh, I mean, a lot of things. I think probably being humble and being open to other ideas and just, I guess I said this a bit before, but also like keeping an open mind from day one and not going in with preconceived notions, uh, which I had a ton of and just being more, yeah, open and humble. I think, uh, it can, can teach you a lot. I mean, a simple message, but very effective, very powerful. Humility leads to listening and listening leads to learning and learning can lead lead to better action. So yeah, the learning never never stops. Like the learning, University yeah, is just like a stepping stone, you know? Yeah, the learning never stops. Um, everyone, that's Ali Matola. Ali, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, thank you for sharing your story. Just very interesting and the background and how you've kind of converged everything together to create your lane and, and work in tech and work in rights is super, super exciting. I think people are going to get a lot out of this. Thanks a lot for the invite, Bryce. I love the opportunity to be able to, to chat about all this stuff. And yeah, I think it's great that students have an opportunity to like tell their story and also listen to other what other students are saying. I think I would have benefited a lot from seeing this back in the day. So yeah, I hope it uh, hope it's interesting. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. That's why we got it now. Um, uh, thank you, uh, Ollie, and thank you everyone for tuning in uh, to to this episode. I've got more episodes coming soon in the future. You can follow me on Twitter at BryceB88. Um, you can also find me on LinkedIn if you want to. Um, but yeah, I'll have more episodes coming. But in the meantime, take care and be well. Thanks for listening to this episode of People from the Program. Be sure to check us out anywhere you listen to your podcasts and stay tuned for future episodes of the show. 